Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the sixth week of our eight-week practice period. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so I don't know, did anybody show up last week uh, and, and not get in because it was we closed up because of snow? No? You drove by. Yeah, we tried to reach everyone. We did the talk um, online last week. So that was a new experience for me, talking to a screen. Yeah. Uh, so if you missed last week's talk, we talked about, um, well, this is the third noble truth. So we started with uh, that suffering exists, that there's a path that leads us to suffering, that liberation exists. And that was what we talked about last last week. And this week, we're going to talk about the path that leads to liberation. We'll spend the next two weeks <coughs> on that. And then at our day of mindfulness that will cap this, we'll kind of uh, drop out of our heads and and uh, just look at what, what we are taking away from this study. So last week, it was, uh, it was really interesting for me. I, I really enjoyed focusing on what liberation really is. What does it feel like to be free? Um, so if you didn't have a chance to, uh, to hear that talk, you might want to do that so you can touch into your own sense of being free. Because that really is um, the fruit of the practice that comes, uh, that we all sort of, I think, come to practice for, is that sort of freedom. So tonight, we're going to talk about this path that leads to this liberation, this freedom. It's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's up here on the whiteboard. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize anything. There's no test. Um, it's, not, it's not a list of things to do to become a good person. It's a, it's a set of behaviors that when taken together, liberate us. It's not something we have to do. It's something that we start to do and see real benefits for ourselves. <clears throat> it's called um, the Noble Eightfold Path, and each one of the factors of the Eightfold Path has right in front of it. Right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So what does this right mean? Um, I, I don't think it's a very good translation. Because it's so easy to confuse that of do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing, like some kind of a moral judgment. But it's not. It's a sense of right in uh, right as effective. It's right because it works. I think we could probably also translate it just as accurately, or maybe more accurately, as wise. So wise view and wise thinking and wise speech, etc. So do the translation in your head that, that works for you, but it's real easy to get hung up on this right thing. Uh, <clears throat> so this Noble Eightfold Path is a gradual path. This isn't something that we look at tonight and we say, I get it, I've got it, I wrote it down, done. It really is a lifelong path. 
and we just continue to work on each one of those facets and like going in a, in a circle. And it deepens and it deepens and it deepens. And because each one of the facets of the Noble Eightfold Path inter-R with each other, they all affect each other. We don't even have to worry about knowing how to do all of them. We can pick one. We can pick the one that speaks to us the most and go as deep as we want with that one. Because if we do that, we will end up practicing all eight. You can't really just do one in isolation. They inter-R. Each one of these is just a different facet of your opening heart. They're not different. They're just different ways of looking at the same opening of your heart. When we practice this, it changes our measure of success. We go through life kind of habitually believing that uh, getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want will make us happy. But the Noble Eightfold Path, as we walk it, it begins to shift that assumption. It kind of turns our lives into, into a bit of a monastic experience. Um, what I mean by that is it takes us out of our view, which we'll talk about tonight, our view of what life is and shows us something deeper. Not because someone tells us about it, but because we learn it ourselves as we walk the path. We show ourselves. We become contemplatives when we walk this path. So we begin to develop our, our presence, our ability to be with things as they are. It's a lovely way to be to shift our point of view from, I'll only be happy if I get that, or if I don't have that, to seeing that hmm, all those things can happen. All the things we like, all the things we don't like, they can all happen, but I don't have to chase after them. They can all be there, but I don't have to chase after them. I got to practice that tonight when, when we were sitting. I, I was having cramps in my feet really painful cramps, but I could, I, I could just watch them, watch them come, and I don't like it, but I didn't have to flee it. It was just there, and then it would be there for a while, and then it would go, and then it would come back. It would hurt. It hurts a lot, but I was free of having to run away from it, and that is such a such a sense of liberation. Mm. So rather than having to control the world so it doesn't bring us what we don't want and gives us more of what we do want, instead our new measure of success becomes our skillful response to the world. Totally different way of, of being. So we can think about these eight factors of this path as, as uh, in three different categories. 
The first category is right view and right thinking. So this is the category of fostering wisdom in our lives. The next two, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, are a way of thinking about ethics, about how do we act in the world, how do we interact um, skillfully. And the third group, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, are about our meditation. So we don't have to think, remember all eight. We can just remember that there's three different basic tasks that the Eightfold Path is presenting to us. The path of wisdom, the path of ethics, and the path of meditation. So tonight, let's take up right view and right thinking. We'll take up the path of wisdom, those two together. And they, they're, they very closely inter-are. So when I talk about one, I'm kind of talking about both, but I'll, I'll distinguish between one and the other. So let's start with right view. <clears throat> we, um, Anais Nin said, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. And I think that is so true. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world through our filters, our views. And all of us have these views. There's no, there's almost no way to not have them. We, we just develop them. So they, they arise from uh, what we talked about earlier, that the, the path towards suffering. Our views arise that same way. We have contact with the world. In some sense, one of our senses has contact with the world, whether that's physical contact or mental contact. And what arises right away is a feeling. So a feeling that says, I like that. I don't like that. That's where views start to be created right there. So the feeling is the initial evaluation of this raw sensory experience. And, the, and how we evaluate it really depends upon our views. Uh, my sister and I, for instance, uh, we could stand together at, at, at a fence and see a horse, and my sister would say, oh, cool, because she loves horses, and she rides all the time, and she rides side saddle and all this stuff. She loves them. And I'd see a horse, and I'd kind of go, eh. Because <laughs> I sort of had bad experiences with a horse when I was a kid, you know. So horses to me are sort of scary. To her, they're just the coolest thing ever. We're standing side by side, looking at the same sensory input. But because we have different views, our world is very different. It's like we're wearing different glasses. You know, she has the horses are great glasses. I have the horses are meh glasses. <laughs> What, when I, uh, in years past, I lived near a lake, and I used to go and walk around this lake. There was like a three-and-a-half-mile loop around this lake. And it was winter once when I was doing this, and <clears throat> it was dark. And part of the trail went right along a parking lot of an elementary school. 
So it was very dark there, no, no street lights or anything. And as I went past this, went, went past this parking lot, I looked at this pile, it looked like a kid's coat or something in the parking lot. I couldn't really see it, but it just looked like a you know, pile of clothing that somebody left. And I, and I walked on and it, something bothered me. You know, something really bothered me about it. It just, something's not right. So I turned around and I walked back. And as I got closer and closer to what I thought was a kid's coat, I began to, I be, I began to be afraid. I couldn't tell what it was, but something wasn't right. But, but I got uh, kind, of, kind of afraid. And um, the closer I got, I began to see that it was a person. And it was an elderly lady as I got very close. But what was so interesting was I was, I had this fear reaction that came up. That's kind of a fight or flight reaction, not knowing what I was going to find in the dark in this, in this place. And is, is this something terrible? Is this, I, I didn't know. And, and as soon as I found out it was this elderly lady, it completely changed for me. You know, all of a sudden, oh, this is somebody that needs help. And it, and it turns out this was a, a woman with dementia who, who lived with her family nearby and wandered out in the middle of the night and fell in this parking lot. So there was this little <coughs> lady lying there in the cold in the winter. And as soon as I knew it was, a, it was this lady, my view was completely different and my reaction was completely different. You know, so I put my coat over her and I you know, ran home to, I didn't have a cell phone and, um, you know, got help and came back with a blanket. And, but it was, what really struck me was my view dictated so much in those moments. The view leading up to it was fear and fight or flight. And my body was like this. But after I, after I knew it was just a little old lady who needed help, all that went away. And then my view was one of compassion. Very powerful lesson in view for me and, and how much views affect our, our um, ability to be in the world. So all of us have a point of view. Right? We are a single person, at least when we talk about ourselves in that way. Um, we have a single point of view, and this is why we need a sangha, because a single point of view is always wrong. Well, that's a big statement. Mm-hmm. It's always wrong to some degree or other. It doesn't get a wide enough point of view to really take in the truth. It's a point of view bound in time. It's not, it's not seeing things in their fullness, in their progression. It's bound in, in space. It's bound by all of our mental formations that form our views from the past. So it's always got an error in it of some sort or other. Always. One of the things that I loved about working at hospice was that when a new patient would come on service, all the different disciplines would go and visit the patient. And then we would come back and we would report what our view based on our discipline was. 
and people reported different things. There was the med- medical point of view, there was the psychosocial point of view, there was the spiritual point of view, and all of us could feel like we had gone in there and met this person and done this assessment and knew what was going on. But very often when we all got back together, we'd begin to see that, oh, there's a bigger picture. There's a context in which this physical pain is occurring. Uh, there's a reason for the existential pain that I didn't pick up on because I wasn't looking at the psychosocial. We put it all together. We had a much better point of view. Uh, all we can do really is do the best we can and then look to others to help us so that our point of view is more correct. So we, co- we cultivate um, a more correct point of view by practicing. Our actions create mental formations which create views. So whenever we act, we are, and, and by acting I mean also thinking, because that's an action, we have to recognize that we are creating um, we are creating the mental formation that gives rise to a view. So all of our actions matter. All of our actions matter. Every action we take, every thought we allow, everything we say makes our view what it is. Our actions have consequences. So a part of that path of practice to generating um, a writer view, because I don't know that we ever really get the completely right view, uh, is, is the practice of the Four Noble Truths, which is what we're doing now. So when we do this practice, uh, we know when we're suffering, we know what the path to suffering is, we know what it's like to let go of our suffering, and we know what the path is to let go of our suffering. That's the Four Noble Truths. But if we don't practice, then we don't know we're suffering. And that means we're clouding our view with emotions like anger or beliefs uh, about things. So it's really important we practice the first part of it. So when we don't understand the roots of our suffering, we don't understand why we're suffering, then we get stuck back in the animal realm, which we talked about. You know, the animal realm is that realm of just reacting. That's the only choice you have. You just react. And if we can't let go of our suffering, if we don't know what our liberation feels like, then we can become depressed or fatalistic. And then, then our view is not, uh, not accurate at all. And if we don't know the path of liberation, we just sort of flail around trying solutions that don't work. You know, like, uh, like when psychotherapists back in the 60s and 70s, they would prescribe to people to go punch their pillows when they're angry, that, that somehow was going to vent it. And they found out later, well, that just, makes it, that just reinforces your anger and makes that mental formation of anger even stronger. So, you know, we can sort of flail around trying all these things if we don't know there's, there's actually a path that can lead us to liberation. But ultimately, right view is no view at all. To be liberated is to let go of the I that perceives. The I is a point of view. 
So when we let go of the I, what we're doing is we're letting go of our, our grasping at things and our aversion from things because I am the one grasping and I am the one that has aversion. Uh, we let go of those filters that say, I need this. This is, this, is what, this is what I am. This is what I have to have. We let go of seeing with that judging and controlling I that the I has. When we can do that, we can see that it's possible to have no view at all. And that's a very liberating experience. I remember one time walking down the road to my house and I realized that there wasn't a person walking. There was just simply footsteps and the sky and the cool air. And it was lovely. And in the next moment, my, my self asserted itself and said, oh, no, this is scary. You've disappeared. You've got to come back. And I had a point of view once again. But, you know, it was a moment of experiencing the right view of no view at all and how liberating that, that is um, to experience that. So right view can't be forced. You can't, you can't convince yourself to have right view. You can't make yourself have right view. It's a fruit of practice. It comes of its own accord. And we, just, we have to trust that, that walking the path will, will, will yield right view. But, you know, we're, we're human beings and we have karma and we're generating karma all the time. And by karma, I mean those mental formations that accumulate as a consequence of our thoughts and our actions. We're accumulating these all the time. And this is just normal. This is the, what it is to be human. So it's not like we should make a fetish out of having no view at all. Sometimes that arises, but we're human beings. But we can check our views by, by bringing in Sangha eyes to see when we're really confused. That helps a lot. <coughs> okay, that's right view. Or at least my view of it. <laughs> I hope that um, you're enjoying reading uh, Tai's book, uh, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, because this is, this is what we're covering now. And so if you haven't started reading that, I think it's pages 49 to 118, something like that, where he talks about each one of these. And he really has such a beautiful way of getting right to the heart of it and not wasting any words. Um, <clears throat> so I, I hope that you're finding that useful. Okay, right thinking. So right thinking and right view inter-R pretty strongly because our views influence what we think and what we think influences our views. So it's almost, it's, it's really difficult to even talk about one without talking about the other. To think right, or maybe to think wisely, is to think about things as they are. If we want unwise or wrong view, I mean wrong thinking, it means we're thinking about a fantasy as opposed to the way things are. <clears throat> so in order to do that, we have to be aware when we have views that are coloring what we're thinking about. 
you know, this, this happens, I, I recognize this a lot in myself when I start to ruminate. You know, I'm ruminating about what happened in the past or, or what might happen in the future. I'm playing over the same thing that I've played over in my mind year after year after year. I'm not thinking about things as they are. I'm thinking about things that I'm fantasizing. In order for me to think about things as they are, they need to be right here, right now. We've been using this phrase over and over, this is it. It has to be right in the present moment for me to to, um, have right thinking. I noticed that um, my phone with Facebook on it is a perfect generator of unwise thinking. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we really don't don't have a precedent for this in in our uh, human experience. What I found is I would like Facebook to be a way for me to stay in touch with people that I'm close with. I want to hear about my what my cousins are doing in Nebraska and this sort of stuff. But the algorithms of Facebook apparently uh, know my politics because of what I've liked over the over. And my cousins don't have my politics. So my cousin's feed does not show up on my phone, but I get an endless stream of things I already agree with. And I don't I don't want that. I want to see what my cousins are doing. Um, this is generating wrong thinking for me because it, it just keeps putting something that isn't real in front of me over and over and over again. And pretty soon I forget that it's not real and I think it's, oh, I've got, I've got this all figured out. <clears throat> I think that my thinking is correct, but it's not. Another way that really struck me with my uh, wrong thinking was on the election night in 2016. And we were watching the election returns and I had my iPad out and I had the New York Times on it and it was showing these little dials uh, showing the likelihood that that Clinton would win or Trump would win. And it started out, it was like you know, 87% likely that Clinton was gonna win. And of course, I trusted it. And as the night went on, you know what happened. You know, I watched the dials go over here, and I was in utter disbelief. I could not believe what was happening. It was, it was shocking to me. And I realized that my thinking has not been right thinking. My thinking has not been about what is true. My thinking was what I wanted to believe, like a lot of us uh, did, I think. Um, I had left out a whole swath of the experience of what was going on in the country. And I thought I knew what was going on. I thought there was no way this was going to go the way it went. Um, So I realized that I had both wrong view and wrong thinking. And it was a a real shock to to face that. I I think I was pretty smug in my view. So right mindfulness, which is over there on that side, 
really in, is uh, supportive of right thinking. We can't know what is true if we aren't aware. I think I wasn't aware in that case of the election returns and what was leading up to it. So right mindfulness brings mind and body together so that we are present right now for what is actually true and what's going on. Uh, one of the things that Ty likes to say and wrote in his, in his book uh, was about uh, Rene Descartes and, he, and how Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And for Descartes, the fact that he was thinking proved to him that he existed. Because if he didn't exist, he couldn't think. And of course, Thich Nhat Hanh takes, takes it, turns it on his head, and he says, I think, therefore I am not. <laughs> and what Thai means by that is uh, without right mindfulness that brings the mind and body together in the present moment, if I'm thinking about some abstraction in the past or the future, I'm not there. I'm not really alive. I'm just a, f a phantom. So I think, therefore, I am not. <clears throat> yeah. So Tai gives us three practices that can bring us back in mindfulness so that our thinking is actually about what's true and what's real instead of some sort of fantasy. So the first practice that, that, he, uh, that he taught is, uh, am I sure? He used to love to ask this question, are you sure? And I, I must say that uh, I can't think of a time when I was sure. And that takes me out of thinking um, in a way that is falsely certain based on something that's not in front of me. So that's the first one. And I would really suggest uh, making a, a, a little piece of paper or something and put it, put it around. Are you sure? Am I sure? So you can read that. Uh, it's helpful on the dashboard of your car. You jerk! Oh, am I sure? Well, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> so the second one is uh, the question, what am I doing? He used to love to come around into the kitchens on the retreats where people are chopping, 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 and ask, what are you doing? And uh, it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't want to hear, I'm chopping carrots. He wants you to stop come back to this moment and know what it is you are doing. You're being aware in this moment. And if, if, if someone, when he asked that question, could stop and smile, then he knew that it was effective. But if they started talking about the onions and the garlic, and, and then he, uh, he'd give them some encouragement. <clears throat> So the third practice that he suggests is, uh, is the phrase, hello, my habit energy. The knowing when our habit energy is preventing us from having right thinking. So our habit energies generate our thinking. Our thinking generates our action. So if we can notice our habits, we can influence our thinking. 
or at least we can notice when our thinking isn't about reality. I, I realized this the other day um, when I went to Safeway. Oftentimes, I go to Safeway when I'm on my way home, which means I'm trying to catch a ferry. And I don't go into Safeway when I have an extra hour. I, have, I go into Safeway when I look and I say, oh, okay, I got 10 minutes. I can go in there and I can get bananas and blah, 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 and then I can still make the ferry. So that, that, that is my habit energy right there, to do that, to not give myself enough time. So the habit energy of, of, of not giving myself spaciousness to go into Safeway then leads me right into Safeway where my thinking is now not present. It's not about the present moment. So now what, I, now what happens is I get in line and I find the slowest checker. Or I get it be in line behind the person with 21 items in the 20 item aisle, right? And so I stand there and I'm, and I'm judging, I'm impatient, I'm uh, and all this because my habit energies said, you can do that in 10 minutes led me to wrong thinking about the checker and about the person ahead of me. And it, my action out of that was to be judgmental um, and unhappy. So, hello, habit energy. <laughs> when I get the urge to think I can run in with 10 minutes instead of just go in there with enough time to, to let that fairy go and catch the next one. Ah, hello, habit energy. I can make new habit energy. Wouldn't that be nice? Hmm. <clears throat> so the five mindfulness trainings also really helps us generate right thinking. Thoughts arise from the conditions of our lives. You know, for instance, back to that story about my sister and I, uh, the conditions of her lives, of her life, really helped her have a view when she saw the horses to think, ah, oh, this is great. And the conditions of my life were different. And so I didn't have that same, same experience. So knowing that the conditions of our lives can influence our thinking uh, invites us to then create conditions that support us to be present so that we can think actually about what's true. So for instance, I, um, one of the things about the mindfulness trainings is at the fifth one, we watch what we consume. We pay attention to what we consume. And I, by doing that, I learned some time ago, uh, if I watch a scary movie or a violent movie, I don't feel good. It, it doesn't help me. And so I limit myself from seeing those. I don't want to impose that kind of suffering on myself. So this can help me to, to form right thinking because if I, were to, if I were to create the conditions of watching those movies, then my thinking would not be about what's real. It would be about what the, the fantasy that the filmmaker created of the violence or the scary. Um, just coming here to, to Sangha and sitting each week that's, that is practicing uh, the support of right thinking because we're creating the conditions in our lives that help us to be present so that we can see things as they are. 
We can, we can consume um, healthy media instead of um, propaganda media or biased media. You know, that can help create the conditions for us to have right thinking and, and um, not end up where I ended up on election night. You know, when the, when the monastics choose to live in the monastery, it creates a very powerful field of right thinking for them because everyone around them is practicing all the time. And so it becomes, it becomes very easy to develop right thinking. And there, were, there was a young couple in the 90s, early 90s, that, that showed up at Plum Village and uh, almost accidentally, and they stayed, and they became, um, they became ordained and became a monk and a nun. And they were, they were a, monks, a, nun, a monk and a nun for um, about 10 years, I think. And then they left the, the monastic practice. And they moved uh, to, to uh, New Hampshire and have started a practice center there for, for lay people. But the Fern, the, the woman, uh, I heard her talking one time about that she had been so spacious and open in the monastery. And then when they, when they left the monastery, she struggled mightily for a couple of years because she didn't have everyone around her that was also practicing. The conditions of her life went from one of being able to focus with all the Sangha energy to, to being out in the world where she was walking down the street mindfully, but no one else was. And she felt foreign and out of her depth and unsupported and very, very difficult to maintain the mindfulness that she, that she had practiced inside the monastery. So we, we can foster the conditions that make right thinking easier for us. <clears throat> okay, one more. That's it. One more, one more thing. Right thinking <clears throat> is non-thinking. Just like right view is, not, is no view at all. <clears throat> In Zen we like to say, think non-thinking. And the reason that thinking is like right view, always wrong to some degree, is that any thinking has a point of view. There is, an, there is a subject and an object. I am thinking about that. And we know from looking deeply that the I ultimately is an illusion. So because there's an I in our thinking, our thinking is wrong to some degree or other. But again, we have to function. We have to function as human beings. So we, we don't try and get rid of our thinking. We try and sort of purify our thinking the best we can, but recognize that it, there is some uh, error in our thinking, and we can really practice humility with that. Hmm. So that is the wisdom part of the Noble Eightfold Path. And then next week we'll look at the ethics part and we'll see if we get into the meditation part. We'll see. Um, we might sort of save that for after our practice period ends because that kind of is what we talk about all the time. 
and we might we might just decide that well we'll uh, we'll bring that up uh, over and over uh, in the future. So I think that's it for tonight. Um, so please do check in with the with the book and uh, see what Thich Nhat Hanh has to say. He's so much more eloquent than I can be. Um, yeah. So thank you for for your kind attention. Mm. Holding me in your view and in your thinking while we do this. <laughs> <laughs>